discipline of good relationships among Christians and in the church and amongst Christians with the world still appears to be yet the most difficult practice that faces us today. It is probably the most difficult barrier for people getting into the church, not so much of a barrier for people leaving the church, if you know what I mean. You see, for 2,000 years, this has been the work. And we, we get the, that part of Luke that says, um, we know that we want to be uh, treated as people would treat themselves. We, we, every one of us have that part of the golden rule down. The difficulty is treating others the way we want to be treated. It's tough. It's hard but it is at the core of everything we do as the people of God. Statistics will bear this out. Um, Christians are still staying married only at about 50% of the time. Okay, That that statistic remains before us. And, And a new statistic has written up has risen up uh, in the wake of that. And that is the, um, the vast amount of what is called church hopping that takes place today. People, instead of doing the work of, of having the relationships that God wants us to have, you just go to another church or a bigger church or some place where some of that stuff Uh, for some reason, seems easier to us. For some reason, like the the book of Judges, it seemed right in our own heart to do it this way. Or as Solomon would tell us in in, uh, the third chapter of, uh, of the Solomon wisdom, the Proverbs, lean not on your own understanding, and this is exactly what we do. So I'm telling you ahead of time that the question I have for you is a trick question. Okay, I've told you that, so let me read it. I'm going to give you just a moment to think about it. You know, and just let, I, I just love this part of the service because I, I just envision all of you like uh, cartoon characters in a strip. You know, there's a bubble up here, and all these things begin to bubble up above your head. Please don't say anything, just, just go with the question. What brings us together in relationships of hope? I want you to take a moment and think of all the things that bring the church together in relationships of hope. What is it that makes that work? Remember, this is a trick question. Okay, so here's your answer. Our difficulties and our sufferings. Not all the stuff you were thinking, you know, if it's all easy and it's all working and people are friendly... That's really not, in fact, some of you might be saying, really? If you were my 11-year-old granddaughter, you would say something like this. Seriously, Pop-Pop? Really? It's hardship, it's difficulty, it's suffering. Is, Is that, it's true. God's preferred method of growth, maturity, and binding us together is the difficulties that we go through, the conflict that we engage, and the suffering that we share. Those are the things in which we find the hope of relationship. 
So Paul, it shouldn't strike us at all strange that Paul would open the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians with the foundation of, of what built his work. And he builds it on the hope of our relationships. But it, it kind of strikes us differently than we might think. So the first thing is the beginning of these relationships. And I just encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I just want to read for you uh, the first uh, six and a half verses or so. And just listen to what's going on here so that we can, we can find our place in this difficult, this difficult arena. You know, brothers, Paul is writing back to them, he's not with them, that our visit to you was not a failure. There's a handful of words here that are very important. This is the first of them. We had previously suffered and had been insulted in Philippi. And I just want to stop there for a minute. You see, Philippi was also a suffering, difficult situation. But we also have a letter to the church in Philippi. And if you read that letter, you know that that was a place of supreme joy for Paul and the people of Philippi. It was their suffering. It was their persecution. It was their sticking with it. It was their faith in God when things didn't appear right that made it a mighty church. And that's just a sideline. The same thing's going to replicate itself right here. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. In other words, it was terrible back there. And by the time we got to your town, the same forces were trying to push us on using the same method. Difficulty, strife, negativity, conflict to push us down the road. Well, maybe God doesn't want us here. Have you ever, ever had that all had that experience. It's not going well. I wonder if God just wants me to run. For the appeal we make to you does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men. But God, who tests our hearts, you know we never used flattery. That's an uh, that's a interesting tool in building relationships, isn't it? Just say what they want to hear. But it's hollow. Nor did we mask or cover up greed. God is our witness. We were looking for the, we were not looking for the praise of men. Not from anyone. Not even you. So there's several things going on here. Paul is persecuted uh, in the church that they came from, is persecuted here, and simply does not give up. But the persecution here has a name that Paul's being very careful with, and that name is slander. You see, the persecutors are trying to convince the Thessalonians that everything about Paul's mission was wrong. And that's where it starts with most of us. The enemy wants to get in and start saying that, boy, if everything's not going well, this may not be where you need to be. 
You see, he starts off by saying in verses 1, 3, and 5, the mission was not a failure. It did not come out of error. It was not brought to you in impure motive, tricks, flattery, and I left one off, or greed. But you see, the enemy had been nailing the church. Oh, Paul, they were, they're making money off you guys. They're, they're tricks and, and flattery. They're trying to make a name for themselves. It was a failure. You know it was a failure. Paul and his company, uh, Silas and Timothy, they had to run for their lives. All this slander was building up an alternative story to what Paul experienced. Because it was not failure, error, impure motive, tricks, flattery, or greed. It was a divine appointment. Here's Paul's list from verses 2, 4, and 6. We had God's help. We had God's approval. We were under God's test. And we had God's witness. Paul's saying, I know it seemed rough, but I'm telling the story as it really was. I love the word test there. The test that God brings is the test of conflict, difficulty, and suffering. And so far, Paul says, we're passing that test. And isn't it like us to think that when it gets difficult, maybe we should pack our bags? How many people in the time of Jesus, all the way to now, look at the life and mission of Jesus as a failure? The bad guys got him at the end. Of course, you have to disregard the whole ending story to understand what else is going on there. But we do the same thing. Is Jesus failing me today? Does Jesus want me to be in this church today? Does Jesus want me to continue this ministry today? I'm not feeling, I'm not seeing the signs. I just want to read something to you out of Isaiah 55. Uh, you know, if, if there's one place in the Old Testament, I, I often refer to the clean part of your Bible, you know, because folks just don't get in there. But if you just wanted to pick some place to camp out for a while, I'd, I'd, I'd really offer you Isaiah 55. But listen to these words. And this was predicted a long time ago so that we in this day and age could read these words and say, I think Jeff's on to something here. And this is God saying through the, through the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your. As the rain and the snow come from heaven and return and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish. So it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire it to achieve for the purposes for which I sent it. I, I love the metaphor. Isaiah is saying through the voice of God, it's the bad weather that you suffer through. It's the harsh winter that brings the spring and brings the seed and brings the fruit and brings the meal. It's the difficulty. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Engage it. 
find the Christ response where Jesus stands all alone in Luke 6 and says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute. Jesus knows what his mission was and remains faithful to it as he calls us to do exactly the same thing. Hey, check out uh, the second part. So uh, the, the relationship's approach is very personal and he uses two amazing metaphors. One that would be really unlike the Apostle Paul. It's the first one. The first metaphor is like a mother. And, and, and begin to circle the words that he uses here in the passage. As apostle of Christ, we could, we could have been a burden to you but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Because you had become dear to us, surely you remember, brothers, the toil and the hardship we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to you or to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. First metaphor is mother. Look at these words. A mother is gentle, caring, life-giving, unburdening. It is very uncharacteristic of Paul to become this intimate and to become this female. But it is what it is. What you're seeing here is the, 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 the mother metaphor in Paul is saying, we came as a nurse caring and offering ourselves. When Paul says, we could have come to the doctor as a doctor and ordered what was best for you. We could have been the know-it-alls. We could have just demanded because we had apostolic authority. We could have commanded you to do things. But he said that would have gotten people nowhere. They needed to freely find Christ and Christ's way of developing relationships in the midst of conflict and suffering and difficulty. The second metaphor is like it. This is a little more like Paul. You, verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of the holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you and among those who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging. These are all amazing verbs. You to live lives worthy of the God who calls you into the kingdom of glory. Now the word holy here, and he he comes alongside, he says, we were holy, righteous, and blameless. So let's camp there for a minute. This is, a, this is an important word. Literally, righteous means fair. It wasn't righteous in the pharisaical way in which they had kind of earned their righteousness. We've, we've done nothing wrong. We have this stellar behavior. It was a righteousness that said, a righteousness of fairness. And it was a blamelessness, not blameless of sin, but forgiven of sin. And I think that's important because what Paul is saying here is holiness is character, it's not behavior. 
And when churches really start to fight amongst themselves, they make holiness uh, a legalism. You, we saw you do this, 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 this. And therefore, you must be this, that, and this. Holiness, according to Paul, is a character that is fundamental to good relationships. Righteous, that is fair. Blameless, that is not better than anyone else. They're just, they just bought more forgiveness stock than anyone else. They're forgiven. They're saved from something. Encouraging means affirming. The comforting here means that Paul and, and, and Silas and Timothy knew that the Thessalonians had, had parts in their lives and they themselves were failing. But comforting meant that we could embrace our failure and know that we're going to do that. The best Christians you know in the world aren't the ones who never fail and you kind of scratch your head and go, are they for real? The Christians that bless you, you know have clay feet and they own that and they're growing and you go, wow, that's what I want to be like. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be growing in faith. Urging, try again. I just see the Father is trying again. You see the Father here is not the superior. The Father is the servant. The mother is the nurse carrying an offering, and Paul is the father that is the servant, not the superior. Hey, do it my way. He never has to say that. Last week, and again this week, our chapter says they became imitators on their own. They figured that out. Paul didn't hand them a discipleship manual and say, when you start imitating and acting like us, you'll have it down. They just naturally knew that they wanted to be like that. Just stop for a minute and think about a situation in which you're engaging another Christian with whom you either disagree or you just don't have a natural relationship with. And just take it a step further. I know this is a big ouch, but I'm just going to ask you to, to think through this. This passage is so important. If someone were viewing how you were relating to them, what metaphor would they use? Would it be a metaphor of kindness and patience like a father or mother, or would it be something less? Because they're just, oh, they just don't get it. And we somehow have run out of room. The final thing that happens in our passage this morning is the outcome. What is the relationship's outcome? Because we know that they were persecuted, and we also know, we're going to find out in the passage, that they were set apart from each other, and there was little information, and there was little understanding, there, 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 you know, there was little security about how this was going to turn out because they were running Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town like they had done in Philippi. And they didn't know if the, if the church was going to stick. And so Paul finishes up the chapter with this longer por portion of the passage. But, but let me read it to you. It's, it's so powerful. He first talks about what they did because they finally did hear what, what the Thessalonians did. And then in the second half of the passage, he talks about what Paul and 
Silas and Timothy did. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as a word from men, but as actually a word from God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea and of Jesus Christ. You, suffer, you're, you suffered from your own countrymen the same things that those churches suffered. Paul knew in that day and age that if you were a successful church, it didn't mean everyone left you alone. It meant that you were put in the center of the target. Those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God will come upon them at last. So, so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you accepted, you imitated, and you suffered, and you grew. But now here's what he says about himself. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person though not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us from what is our hope and our, our joy and our crown, which is the glory of you in the presence of Jesus. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory. You are our joy. You see, even in the separation and the suffering, Paul and Silas made their way through in the hope that God had given them. You see, hope and joy rise above suffering, conflict, and difficulty. As we walk in, that's what we see at first. But you always know you have joy when everything tells you you shouldn't, and somewhere in your heart it's there, and you uncover it, and you see the glory. And you, you feel the hope. And you know what's going on. A number of years ago I ran across um, a small um, writing that was found in uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp. This was either written on a, on a, a portion of the the wood, wood slab or whatever, and when they came in later and they were, they were freed, someone found this. Uh, this is really amazing. This is that whole sense of how joy under persecution rises up. And it's a prayer. And this is the prayer. Oh Lord, remember not only men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember the suffering they inflicted on us. Remember the fruits that have come to us thanks to this suffering. This is amazing. These are people in, in the concentration camp. Our comrades 
our, our, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart, which has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let the fruits that have been born in us be their forgiveness. Wow. Amen, amen, amen. I know that from our seats in, in, in comfortable, uh, self-sufficient, affluent America, that just sounds incredible. Like, does that really happen? Well, the truth is it does happen for those who uh, give their lives to it. By way of application this morning, I just want to say several things. I, in fact, I have a, I don't know if you got this. Did you get this one another flyer? Is it in there? Oh, good. Well, hang on to that. We're going to go there in a minute. Application. When the Holy Church of Jesus is willing to engage one another in their difficulties, conflicts, and suffering, they grow together. When we or they refuse, to, they grow apart. It's that simple. When the tough starts happening, if we engage that, if we pray with each other, if we cry together, if we heal together, if we reconcile, that's the bonding. You see, engaging and relating to one another builds and brings us together. Avoiding and denying the difficult things of life ultimately drive us apart. Because the duplicity of not noticing the elephant in the room. The hypocrisy of not talking about what we really need to talk about kills the church. So, if you have that flyer, I just want you to grab it. And this is really a take-home piece. But you'll see there a number of uh, verses that are, are, are the one another verses of the New Testament. There are more. But I just want to say this. Jesus is raising up a vision in our day of people who run into tough stuff. It used to be that the persecuted church was something that we talked about on a map when a mission speaker came to the church. And now we're in the soup ourselves. And I, wanted, I, just, I just want to draw, uh, as, I, as I close these remarks, to something that wants to happen in the church. Jesus' vision is that as individuals, we would get it. And because of ind as being individuals, we begin to engage. Paul says it in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. That once we engage, then we become a corporate community that is healthy. And then the third thing can happen. We attract people from the world because that's attractive. A lot of people simply don't go to church because all they hear about is the fighting and the difficulty and the squabbling either in the church or among churches. So the vision is to start with yourself. So I'm just going to focus on this sheet from just you. And I'll just say, I'll say one more thing. The ability to think about what everyone else in the room is thinking about right now is huge. 
The thief really wants you to, well, I don't know, what, is anyone else going to do this? Is he just talking to... It, it, it's distraction and denial to think about who else is going to do this. God's looking for one person at a time. So, the, the, the one another passages, but here's the four realizations. Realization number one, I don't get along with everybody. Nothing new about that. You just need to learn how to say it out loud and own it. Just wear that t-shirt. Number two, I really can't change anybody. You got to wear that on the back of your t-shirt. Okay? I just, it just, I just can't do that. Number three, I realize that other people don't always get along with me. That needs to be on the inside of your t-shirt. Facing the heart. That I'm just, you know, I'm Jeff Mitchell and there's some people that I don't work for them. They're going to have to figure that out, right? And then the inside of the back of the t-shirt, I realize only God can change me. So I will ask God to change me until I'm changed. So here's the challenge. How bad do you want right relationships? Bad enough to stop praying that everyone else will change around you? Bad enough to start praying that God will change me. See, we're we're distracted by thinking it's got to happen in some other part of the church or in someone else's church or someone else's theology. And God's asking us to be right here. I'm going to read two verses for you. You need to really know where these two verses are. I just call them the Matthew 5 and 18 duo. Matthew 5, therefore, if you're offering your gift on the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come back. The church does exactly the opposite of this almost every time. They find out that uh, that Jody and I, we're not getting along, so I go talk to Larry about Jody. Now where is that getting us? But it's so much a part of our, our culture to do that. Oh, no, no, Larry and I, it was a prayer request. I was getting counseling. And Jody's left out. He's not here. He's not in it. Simply stop. Talk to my brother. And just, just, just do that. You've got to pray to do that. We will be the most surprised when we do. Now, sometimes that doesn't always work. So you want to go to Matthew 18. And here's what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens, you've earned your brother. You've won him. But if he doesn't listen, take another brother along. So the matter may be uh, established by testimony of witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then take it to the church. And if he refuses to take it to the church, this is the trick question, by the way, trick passage, uh, treat him as a pagan or a tax gatherer. Yeah, like, yeah, then kick him out of the church. That's not what he's saying. How did Jesus treat tax gatherers and, and, and pagans? He made them disciples. He says, start over. So if your first blow doesn't work, then then gather some like people. And by the way, don't bring, I'm not going to bring my friends. I'm not going to bring Larry. I've got to bring Jody's friends. So he realizes it's not a setup. If I have to set it up to get him, then I'm I'm still playing a game, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
This is good stuff. And if that doesn't work, then we take it to the church. And usually that means the intervention of leadership or whatever. And in all of that, God's saying, if you really use these two passages where you'd rather use gossip or prayer request or counseling or whatever you want to call it, you will see amazing things happen. You will see the people that you get along with the least. We see it start to break up and start to work. In closing, I just want to say this, that as, as, as the chapel family, if we begin to insist upon right relationships and resist the temptation that, well, I'll hold hands, we'll all do it when we all do it together. The health of the body begins to improve. People and things start working out. And it usually starts with us. And, and this is why. Because when the world sees the church being the church, not just on holidays and good behavior, but really in those little crevices and those cracks that we don't want anyone to see, when we regard that as God's way, then something powerful begins to happen and take place. And Paul sees this and recognizes it early on in this writing that this was the, this was the gold. This was the diamond in the rough. Not that, not that it was, quote, easy evangelism, easy church planting. The diamond in the rough was that it was tough and every day Paul had to get up and say, I can't, God can, I'll let him. Because it was that tough. And God is using that as his preferred means of discipling us, maturing us, growing us, and binding us together.